If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The guest on today's podcast is historian Emma Griffin. As well as being a professor of history at the University of East Anglia, Emma has written and presented radio documentaries for BBC Radio 4 and was also a historical advisor on the Channel 4 drama The Mill. She's also president-elect of the Royal Historical Society. I spoke to her about her new book, Breadwinner, An Intimate History of the Victorian Economy, which looks at how the broad economic trends of the 19th century actually played out within the homes of working-class families. So your new book ostensibly looks at the Victorian economy, but really this is a very different perspective. Um, You offer an intimate history of how changes um, in the economy actually played out in working class homes. So how does looking at the domestic sphere, which is not usually um, in the remit of economics, offer a different perspective on some of the big, broad trends of the Victorian era? Okay, so I think, absolutely, as historians, we're really comfortable with looking at the economy and we view it very much in terms of numbers. Um, And particularly in the Victorian period, we see real wages going up. So historians are like, okay, well, real wages are going up. That means working people are really benefiting. Um, And I think that's obviously true, that money is flowing into 
kind of the lower classes of society if wages go up. But what I've been doing for a long time is looking at working class autobiographies. And if you look inside autobiographies where people describe in really great detail what life was like inside their family, you can start to see there's a really or there's the potential for a big gulf between what a man earns because actually men are the ones who are doing most of the earning and the uh, wealth as it's felt by people inside the family so men have to go out to work the idea is they come home from work they give their money to the wife and if they do that and of course it's important to stress that lots of men do do that they give their wages to their wife that she spends it on rent and clothing and food above all for the family and everybody lives a nice, happy, comfortable life. But, I mean, obviously it doesn't take a genius to figure out that some men will not be giving over all of their wages to their wives. And it's when that happens that you start to see a much more complicated story between what families ought to have and what they actually do have. That was something really interesting about your book, that some of the ways in which that happened were quite surprising. So you suggest that just because a man had a higher wage, it didn't necessarily mean that his family got to see more of it. In what kind of circumstances did that happen? Exactly. So I think um, in some ways it's really helpful to think about how families worked before the rise of real wages. So the big success story of the Victorian period has been, look, real wages go up for the first time in history. Working people are really, really getting richer. What good news. Um, But actually what happens if you look at the earlier families before in the periods of really low wages, if wages are really low, then men don't have any choice but to give all of their wages to their wife because they're really dependent on her to cook the meals and to keep the home. Um, If you're in a quiet rural area, there's no cafe you can go to. You can't even get a loaf of bread that's been cooked, but forget a hot cup of tea or a a hot cooked meal. You can only get these really basic things if your wife does everything from scratch for you inside the house. So when families are very poor, there's actually a kind of equality between the man's money wage and the domestic work that the mother does, that the woman does. Um, but when men start to earn more and more wages, that kind of equality starts to break down because a man can now get basic things like a hot meal from a cook shop, from a cafe or from a restaurant. So he can get the things that his wife was doing for free for him. He can actually buy these things as well. And it's all contingent on being a little bit better off. The basis of the book is, correct me if this number's wrong, yeah. but 662 autobiographies of people who grew up in working class families at this time Um, and they're threaded throughout all the chapters what are some of the challenges but also the advantages of working with that kind of source material which you're so reliant on here yeah okay so I mean I can't use my sources to really work out exactly how much money families had for example because many people will not have ever known what their father's wage was if their brother or they had a brother that was doing it they wouldn't have known what the you know, they wouldn't have known the money amount um so I can't kind of compete with economic historians who look at masses of data and say look this is how much wages really were and this is how they changed over time what I can do is look at kind of perceptions of wealth so I get a lot of information from these sources about how people felt they were uh, and particularly compared to their neighbors so people will often describe how well they're doing either compared to, you know, they might know their father had a good, well-paid job, but they felt that they were really poor um, compared to other kids at school and they knew their father was drinking really heavily or something. They knew the reasons for it. So what, I mean, so there were lots of problems with the sort of like all sources. All historical sources have problems and drawbacks and omissions, things they don't say very much about. Um, from my perspective, um, the 
downsides more than outweighed by the upsides of looking at these kinds of stories. So you get you get a sense of how people feel about their wealth. The dominant mode, I guess, is a formal way of saying it, of families at this time was the nuclear family. But each of the roles within that family were not just a social role, they were an economic role, a very distinct economic role. Can you tell us the breakdown of those roles? Yeah, I think so. Um, Obviously, we're talking about ideal families. And one of the things I see a lot in the autobiographies and I talk about a lot in the book is actually so many families depart from what is supposed to be the case. Um, But you're supposed to have a man that goes out to work. Um, He's supposed to bring back all of his wages and give it to his wife. His wife is not supposed to work or is not supposed to work very much. She's supposed to be primarily concerned with the domestic work. And it's her work. It's her role to do the domestic work. So the cooking, um, the, it could be fetching water, it could be being responsible for firewood. If you're out in the countryside, you don't have basic things like running water or gas or electricity or anything like that in your home. We don't have that in the cities either, but you've just got slightly better resources. So I, I mean, I think in some ways, the best way to understand it is just to think about the house that doesn't have electricity. Everything requires so much work. You've got to go and fetch the water. You've got to light the fires every time you heat any food or heat, have a hot drink. You're perpetually getting fuel, clearing away dirty fires. You've, there's no refrigeration. So all food has to be gone and bought on a daily basis. It will be coming in a really dirty, you know, vegetables will be really, really dirty. Not like we're used today. They'll be super dirty. Um, everything requires so much labor before you can use it, before you can have a meal. So much work needs to be done. So it's the woman's role really to do all of that. Do you think that's behind this idea um, of the single wage earner in one family, the fact that there was so much domestic work to be done? Is that, yes. is that the basis of that breadwinner I think that I think that is, I mean, the, these ideas are very old. They've been floating around for a long time. Though there's always been in the, some, you know, an understanding that some women will work. And some women do carry on working all through my period. This is just um, the ideal. But it's starting to become slightly more ossified in this period. As male wages start to go up, men are starting to say, um, well, you need to pay us enough. I mean, it's a big part of their kind of um, uh, bargaining argument. You need to pay us a wage that's big enough and good enough to maintain a family. We, we want a breadwinner's wage. We are the breadwinner. We don't want our wives going out to work. And um, obviously on paper, that looks like a really good thing. But for women, it can be very disempowering not to be able to work. Um, and women, it's very difficult for women to work in this period because, um, I mean, there's no childcare available. There's no formal childcare. You have to cobble together your own solutions. It's very difficult if you've got to go out to work and you've got children. Um, there's not much in the way of part-time work, but whether part-time work is obviously going to be really badly paid. And there's also this massive gender pay gap um, in Victorian Britain. So, I mean, even in the most kind of, I mean, in any kind of employment that employs both men and women, you'll usually be looking at women earning about half of what men can earn. So it's really a lot less. Um, and these are all really necessary structures. If you're going to have women staying at home, preparing meals, looking after children, keeping houses uh, going, there's no point having really good, well-paid work out there because women will opt for well-paid work if it's available. And that's what you see in the factory districts. Where good wage work is available, women take it up. So um, it's really another way of keeping women at the home is making sure there are no good work, you know, good wages for them available outside. So it, it seems like a kind of chicken and egg situation. Is it because of low wages that women work in the home or is it because women are expected to work in the home that there's low wages for women? Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, it's really hard to say, isn't yeah. it? It's really, I mean, I, I think we, we've always said, oh, well, um, because women's wages are low, um, many chose to stay at home. 
And I think what I would simply say is actually they didn't really have very much choice because if you can't earn a wage that's enough for you to be independent, you don't really have any choice to go out to work. So, I mean, I I feel, I would say it was very useful in Victorian Britain. It did useful work. Keeping women's wages down was a really good way of making sure that houses had the women inside them that they needed. Um, how come they came to be so low? I mean, you know, we don't really know, but I think, you know, it's right to be a little bit cynical and questioning um, and to be aware of the fact that if women can't earn as much as men, they're never going to have as much power. So these things are kind of much bigger questions, really. Of the opportunities that were available to women for paid work, um, not counting domestic labour, what kind of things could women take on? Well, the choices were really dismal, really. There's not a lot of choices. Um Around Lancashire, where the factories are growing up um, and emerging, there is good, quite well-paid work, relatively well-paid work for women. So they can work as weavers and there's loads of factory work that's available. And it's all relatively well-paid. Though even inside the factories, the men are nearly always paid more. They always divide, put men and women on different machines. And then they call the machines that the men do, the skilled machines, they pay them a lot more. It's the same pattern everywhere. But outside that, the the, the opportunities, and I have many women in my kind of collection of 600-odd autobiographers who need to work, they've got to go to work because they haven't got a breadwinner. Maybe he's died, maybe he's drinking. Um, who knows why he's not giving you the wage, but you're not getting the wage, so the mother does need to go out to work. And all they can really do is a bit of cleaning work. Um, sometimes if they're lucky, they can get work in a shop. Laundries, they can get work in laundries. It's all really low-paid work. In London, there's things like sweated labour, so you can kind of do box, make make boxes and make pack, you know, pack goods in factories. Um, there's not very much choice of work available, and it tends to be really low-paid. And one of the most depressing things I found from the autobiographers is I've got quite a lot that are written by women. Um, and if you look at those who manage to get a slightly better-paid job, Really, the only two jobs that are available are teaching and office work. Like an office work in particular is actually really badly paid. Um, and the teaching, you could only become a teacher if you spent quite a long time at school. Um, of course, because they're working class women, it's almost impossible for most of my women to spend any, you know, whenever the school leaving age is, it changes slightly over the period. But the minute that moment arrives, their parents yank them out of school. They're not going to go to school anymore. So they've got no chance of becoming a teacher. Um so, and that's the only choice anyway. I mean, there's only one better option. And actually, it's not open to most working class women. So it's a bit of a dismal story. You mentioned um, a little bit earlier that the one of the ba- uh, barriers to women working, taking on paid work, was childcare. I wonder if yeah. you could just dig in a little bit more about um, some of the other barriers and, and childcare as well. Because um, there's some <clears> shocking <throat> stories in your book of children being tied to bedposts because yeah, they can't afford absolutely. to... I mean, I think there's no, I mean, it's not institutionalised, the idea that women would go out to work and that they would need childcare. So every woman who needs to find childcare has to figure out her own solution. In the factories, there's kinds of childminding services that are available. So you've got quite a good chance of finding somebody who takes lots of children, a bit like today's childminder. But anywhere else, there's really nothing. You're dependent on your family um, or you're just dependent on finding a neighbour or anybody um, who will look after your child. Um, and because this is kind of viewed as women's work, of course, women get paid really low wages. So nobody wants to pay for childcare. So the payment that people will make to um, other women for looking after their children will be really low. So obviously the standard of care that your children will receive is really low. So mothers with small children just have really, really difficult options. And 
I mean, they're just all, it's kind of depressing to look at. They're just all scrabbling around, basically trying to find a family, a, a, a family member or a neighbour who will keep an eye on their children. But it's really low level care. Um, and yeah, and you do see accidents and mishaps happening. Um, as well as the pressures that were placed on women by this single earner system, mm. it needs to be recognised that there were also a lot of pressures placed on men. What kind of um, yeah. stresses were they under or as the respons- as being responsible for feeding an entire family? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really easy to, um, if you look at reading enough autobiographies, it's really easy to become quite anti-men because over and over you have the same story being told where the father has quite a good job, um, but he prefers drinking to providing for the family. Um, and the family live in poverty whilst he's off down at the pub. And it, it's really easy to become quite hostile. But actually, when you scrape away at the men's stories, because you can read the men's stories as well in these sources, you realise actually that it's a very difficult setup for them as well. And very often, because the home is so powerfully coded as a female space and as a space for children, quite a few of the autobiographers talk about how things like their father didn't really belong in the family. He didn't really know how to speak to the children. He didn't really have a place in the family, that there was like marital disharmony. So uh, he's out at the pub all the time. And, you know, I think this kind of very divided home, it could be quite a neg- you know, it could be quite a hostile place for men. And you end up in this very vicious circle where he's kind of ejected from the family. He starts drinking, the children hate him even more, the family hate him even more, so he starts drinking even more. You know, the classic negative spiral. But you also find that a lot of these men are doing really difficult jobs. It's really heavy labour, it's really long hours, it's really draining. Um, sometimes the work is really scary, like mining. I mean, it's very, and it can be very, men can have traumatic experiences whilst they're at work. It can be very dangerous work. Um, and again, you see them saying things like, well, I, I, I turned to drink because it was really warming and it gave me courage and it made me feel better. Um, so I think life is just really difficult for working people at this time. Um, and, and, I, and I think also it's important to emphasize that not every family is breaking down. Lots of men are putting up with these really difficult working conditions and they're sharing their wages with their wife and everything is good. Um, so I try to give space to describe how families do work and how they can function. Um, it's just very apparent that it's not functioning in really quite, you know, we're not talking about 1% or 3%, we're kind of talking about 15 20%, a really large minority of families where it's not working very well. On the flip side of those pressures placed on men, um, you also examine how work was really important in shaping masculine identities and being seen as a, a way to graduate from being a boy into a man. Absolutely. So work provides men with their status and with their identity. Absolutely, definitely. Um, and you, you see this very clearly in the autobiographies of boys. So, uh, you know, boys start off like girls. They're unimportant people in the family. They're the last people to be fed. They don't get good quality food or meat. They wear clothes that are secondhand you know, hand-me-downs from their older siblings. And then at some point, boys start to go to work. And at first, they're not earning very much money, but very quickly, they're starting to earn more and more. And they'll often describe this moment in their childhood, well, they'll be in their teens by now, where they start to earn more than they need to give to their mother in order to um, um, earn their own keep. So their, their wages reach a level whereby they can keep some pocket money and then they can start to do things like join political parties or clubs or have leisure. They can start to kind of really identify themselves or they describe just using their money and spending it on buying clothes that suit them rather than being in other people's kind of secondhand clothes. Um, 
but work above all, I mean, work and masculinity are so um, closely intertied. A man gets status first and foremost in his family. That's nobody, no family, a family finds it very difficult to respect a father and breadwinner if he's not working and he's not bringing in the money. Um, but also with respect to all their male peers, there's so much male friendship that takes place around the workplace. Um, so men are getting almost you know, they're getting their money, they're getting their identity, they're getting their friendships from the workplace. Um, and sometimes that's dovetailed when it works really well, that's dovetailed with family relationships as well. But sometimes it's just the work really that's providing them with their identity and the family is a much more kind of conflicted and divided place. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. What we see in my period is women working really, really hard, but not getting paid for that work. But the society couldn't function without that work being done. So we've got to put women's work back in there. We've got to think about economy slightly differently so that we can um, really capture and understand women's contributions. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. A lot of the autobiographies you look at are people who are children in, yes. these, in these family yeah. circumstances. Um, and I think, you know, now we have such a rosy view of childhood that parents will love their children and do anything for them. But these examples show that quite often children could be a burden on families as well. Yeah. I think that's right. I think um, they're just really poor families, basically. They're very poor families. Um, and you do see that it's not all milk and honey um, in these families at all, particularly when money becomes really scarce that puts a lot of strain on the relationships. It puts a lot of strain on a mother's relationship with her children as well. If she's just overworked and undernourished, and so are her children, it can be very difficult to create a happy home in those kinds of environments. And you do see that um, uh, poverty is a great stressor on families and a great stressor on human relationships. And you see this, you know, in that kind of core of the autobiography, not in all of them. Some of them are relatively affluent. Some of them are at the top of the working class scale. Some, they don't all live like this, but you do see um, amongst a kind of a, a big minority, a depressingly large minority, 
where relationships are really under strain owing to poverty. Some of the stories are really complicated. So a child might start off in a nice, comfortable two-parent family, then the father could die, and then suddenly they're catapulted right down to the bottom of the social scale. So you really have um, all sorts of experiences. And I think one of the things that's important to do um, they do do is, is try and, um, I mean, you can find an example of everything, basically, in the autobiography. You've got 600, you're going to find everything. So you mentioned there that uh, autobiography could start off in quite an affluent family and then see that break down. And it does seem that, do you think that this model of economic family life left families a lot more vulnerable to poverty? I think that's right. And what we really see is it's just the family. There's only the family. Families look after themselves. There is nothing else. I mean, yes, okay, there's the poor law. So if you're truly destitute, they might find a place for you in the workhouse or you might get a few free loaves of bread or something. But there's nothing in the way of a welfare state type solution that we're familiar with in the 20th century. So I think that's really apparent. And I think that's a kind of a major argument, a kind of a big take home for me from the book is that families um, help to distribute wealth. Families are an important safety net. Um, families are really important, but you cannot put everything onto the family. Families cannot be the final support for everybody because that will leave many women and many children unprovided for and I think that's why we see such brutal poverty in this period is because the state is not stepping in and providing um, a a support for the family Um, and I think particularly as we get richer and a more modern society families are just not up to the task of providing welfare for everybody. And what did poverty look like in this period because you speak about different times of um, Mm. when Hunger, for example, was a, a particular issue. Yeah. So I think um, I think poverty does look quite different as we move over the Victorian period. So in the beginning, poverty, you know, the early 19th century, poverty really means not enough food. And there's many examples in the autobiographers who are really hungry all through their childhood. And they may be in a two-parent family with a father in work. It's just he doesn't earn enough um, to feed all his family, and particularly if there's a um, there's a bad harvest or something goes wrong in a family, these families are kind of plunged into really, um, you know, grinding poverty where there's just not enough food, not enough of the very very basics. So, I mean, it's very clear that by the Edwardian period, when I finish, um, poverty is not really the same thing. Um, poverty is not so desperate and is not so acute, partly because although the government hasn't stepped in, lots of charities are now stepping in. So if children aren't being fed inside their family, there's lots of churches, the Salvation Army, Dr. Bernardo's, all sorts of organisations that are providing hot dinners at school. Um, so there's a there's a there's a kind of a, a, there's definitely you, know, you can see it's a visibly wealthier um, society, and you can see that being poor is not quite such a brutalising experience at the end. Um, It's very much um, a poverty within plenty is what you see in the Edwardian period. You have this very weird mix of a a relatively affluent society, quite a lot of money floating around, and yet children who are really living, you know, haven't got shoes to wear. Um, So it's really the kind of the left behind, and it's a very different kind of poverty. I think poverty when you've got the welfare is a very different kind of poverty to what we see before industrialisation, where there's no wealth and lots of people are poor and there's no really obvious thing that anybody could have done to do anything about it. There's just not enough to go around. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've discussed this round and about throughout this conversation, yeah. but just to kind of nail this down a bit more, what were the the dangers of relying on a breadwinner wage and, and what happened to a family when the breadwinner was incapacitated or absent? That's, yeah. 
I think the, the, the problem with the breadwinner wage is it, it's fine when it works. As long as the father is there, he's in work, he's sharing the wage, it's fine. It's just a very fragile kind of institution. I mean, the simplest, men can die. You know, this particularly in this period where the death rate is high, and particularly in the cities where you've got men doing very dangerous work. I mean, it's a risk for any family to suddenly fall right to the bottom of the social pile because your breadwinner has died. But it's also fragile because it just depends on a man doing the right thing, being a good person, um, doing what he ought to do, doing what society tells him he ought to do. And I mean, that's just not a realistic, um, human nature just doesn't work like that. Obviously, some people will do what's right, but others will either not work regularly or they'll just start keeping a bit of the wage back to themselves to spend on their own hobbies and their own pleasures. Um, So it's not that it doesn't work. It can work really well, but I consider it a very kind of fragile model. Particularly women and wives have no recourse there's nothing they can do to try and get that wage out of their husband except shout and scream at him. And that's just not even effective. Yeah. Um, something that comes up again and again and again and has done in this conversation, but is alcoholism on the one hand yeah. and desertion on, yeah. on another. Why do you think that they were such significant problems? Yeah, I think alcohol really is a significant problem in the Victorian period. And it's one that's very difficult to discuss because... In the Victorian period, there were moralists who blamed everything on the fact that working class men drink their wages. And if they didn't do that, everything would be fine. And of course, as historians, we don't want to come back and say, oh, yeah, they were right. It's all the men's fault. Um, But it really was a problem. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that alcoholism is is an addiction problem. Um, And you see in the autobiographies that some of the men are actually hopelessly addicted to alcohol. They, They can hardly hold down a job. They're suffering really serious health consequences. Some of them are dying young through their drinking and they weren't having a good life. I mean, these men were not living a good life. Um, The families weren't either, but they were really um, in the grip of a a very difficult situation as well. So, I mean, part of the reason you've got heavy drinking as well is decisions that the government have made. They've basically removed all tax from alcohol. So it's really, really cheap. Um, It's very cheap. It's cheaper to get alcohol than it is to make a cup of you know clean water for example is absurdly cheap is very available um it's um licensing laws are really lax so there are pubs everywhere and workplaces often permit people to bring alcohol in or they will be bringing drink in for working men um so i mean the temptation is everywhere um it's just extremely easy if you make alcohol very easily available and very cheaply available um people will and given bearing in mind as an addictive product people will end up getting addicted to it and that is what we see and what about desertion do you think there were remarkably high rates of that um yes in some of the urban areas that i'm looking at um the death rate and the desertion rate are about equal so men are almost as likely to just leave their family and desert them as they are to um die now all statistics are rather difficult when you're looking at autobiographies because you can't be entirely certain that you've got a representative cross-section in the first place. But I think it is evident that desertion is a problem in these cities. And I think it's all part of um, the breakdown of the traditional family. So the tradition, I mean, in the traditional family, it was really difficult for a man to desert because you're in a small face-to-face society. Everybody knows everybody's business. Um, It's just very difficult for a man to get away um, uh, in a rural, I mean, in a rural community, you'd have to get right or you'd have to vanish in the night. Um, in, in urban areas, it's just very easy for men to slip away and live a different kind of life. Um, 
So it's, it's, it's the kind of the dark side of kind of Victorian economic progress in some ways is that families are actually really struggling to adapt to this new world of higher wages. You mentioned um, earlier about the fact that there were a lot of people who did see the breakdown of nuclear families or live outside of those um, mm. systems. What were the difficulties faced by being outside of a traditional family structure? So the difficulties for somebody who doesn't have a breadwinner are really immense because women will always still have the responsibility for looking after the children. And you see this actually, if a husband's unemployed, the wife is still the one taking all responsibility for the childcare and she's working as well. So um, becoming a worker for a mother doesn't mean you don't need to worry about the children anymore. Work is just added to all your very significant domestic um, responsibilities. Um, And also wages are so low for women. So even if they can go out to work, the wages they get, they're going to work really long hours. They're going to, uh, you know, your family is still going to be very, very poor. And you personally are going to be very tired and very exhausted. Um, and it, it, it's just very difficult to keep families together. And you do quite often see the fragmentation of families, um, particularly that the minute a boy is old enough to go out and to work, he'll be sent out to work to try and add to the family income. The other side of this, is, of course, is that it's not only the um, family relationships shaped economics it's that economics shaped family relationships and you look at the emotional impact yeah. of all of this how were emotion and economics tied up in families I think you do see I th- yeah I think that's very much the point that um, it, it all goes both ways um, and I think primarily what you see is that um, very low incomes put a lot of strain and a lot of pressure on family relationships and we we like to idealize um, the working class poor and how they look after themselves, how they, they kind of band together and they, they they work together and they kind of look after themselves collectively. And they do to a degree, um, but there's no denying that really acute poverty um, doesn't bring out the best in people either. And it makes it very difficult. You know, I mean, I think some of the mothers you see, particularly if they're working outside the home, they're just, they're just exhausted, they're overwhelmed, and they can't provide kind of much emotional support for their children. The ways that these writers wrote about their parents, for example, is very much shaped in terms of economics. So they say, my father was a, was a great man, he was a good provider, rather than yeah. he was kind or yeah. loving or anything like that. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's also quite apparent that a lot of the autobiographers didn't really know their fathers very well, because if he is working hard... Um, He's out of the house for 50, 60 hours of the week. Um, many, some of the children describe being in bed. They don't see their father in the week because they're in bed by the time that he comes home and he's gone in the morning before they're up and off at school and things. Uh, so they hardly, you know, they, they sometimes don't really know their fathers as a human being, as a person. So there's this kind of slipping together. He's a good father if he, if he provides for the family. But then actually when you pick away at what they're saying about their father, you're saying them, they don't really say anything very much about him as a man and him as a person. Because um, he is this distant, remote figure that they don't speak to very much. But they can be very grateful and very respectful of the fact that he provided for their family. Um, but there is this kind of um, definite a, a kind of a slippage between um, how people felt towards their father as a person and how they felt towards him as a provider. Mm. It seems like from this conversation and from reading your book that this system wasn't very beneficial for, for anyone. Yeah. Who do you think really bore the brunt? Yes, I think, um, yes, I would not advocate um, any kind of government policy that depends on paying a large wage to men and um, and then just hoping for the best, because I, I think 
my evidence from Victorian Britain suggests that really doesn't work. Um, I don't think it was a, a it was a, a an unmitigated blessing for men. So it's very easy for it all to start sounding as though um, the men are utterly exploitative and useless. And I and I think really it put a lot of pressure on them on their physical health, on their mental and emotional health. And I don't think they were great beneficiaries either. But having said that, it's clear it was far worse to be the wife in this setup because you're so disempowered. If you don't have enough money to pay for proper food for you and your children, you're utterly disempowered. You can't get away if you're in an abusive relationship. You can never get away because you have no money to fund a departure. Um, you're, you're you're definitely the weaker part of the um, of the partnership, you know. And I think it still remains relevant in our own times that women need to have wealth and income of their own, independent of what might be given to them by a partner. How does all of this change our understanding of economics, but also of family dynamics? Yeah, I think this is really part of a broader um, feminist economics. So quite a long time, economists have been saying, or feminist economists have been saying, um, you're making assumptions about the way economies work that are not realistic and don't, you know, do not capture female experiences. In particular, they've started to say you're not counting women's domestic work. And actually, if a woman isn't doing some of this domestic work, you have to pay somebody else to do it. Um, so it is work. And we need to start thinking about um, what counts as work um, in a different way. And I, I think my um, evidence from the Victorian period really feeds into this kind of new feminist economics where we really try and get rid of this idea that the only work that counts is work that you're paid for, because that just privileges the work that men do and what we see in my period is women working really, really hard, but not getting paid for that work. But the society couldn't function without that work being done. So we've got to put women's work back in there. We've got to think about economies slightly differently so that we can um, really capture and understand women's contributions. That was Emma Griffin. Her book, Breadwinner, An Intimate History of the Victorian Economy, is out now, published by Yale University Press. I interviewed Emma for the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Marking the magazine's 20th anniversary, it includes a special feature on 20 of history's greatest mysteries, as well as articles on Europe's last battle of World War II, the Crusades, and an interview about Thomas Cromwell with author Hilary Mantel. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Rutger Bregman will be discussing his new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History.